Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recording. To the Batmobile. Are you watching Star Trek? We would be honored if you would join us. Please proceed with extreme caution. Now, Geek Universe, the weekly show on sci-fi and superheroes, fantasy and horror, and much more. Importing preferences and calibrating virtual environments. I bet my Wookiee. Are you insane? Here he is, the only talk show host who doesn't believe in the no-win scenario, your host for Geek Universe, Jim Yelton. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and children of all ages, welcome to another edition of Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton. And this week, we are bringing you portions of a live show that we just did a week ago at the St. Louis Science Center. It's another First Friday event. This month's theme was James Bond, Jason Bourne, all of those great super spies from film and TV. And we were joined by a great guest, Washington University professor Dr. Colin Burnett, who is actually working on a book about James Bond and the franchise, so it was great having him there. Let's jump right into the fun from the St. Louis Science Center. Thanks, everybody. Um, I I know right off the bat what kind of crowd we have here tonight because uh, at this exact same moment upstairs in the in the planetarium, they're showing uh, Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery. Uh, so if if you're not a fan of Mike Myers, you are here to talk about the the real International Man of Mystery. Um, Joining us tonight, we have a big treat because Dr. Colin Burnett is here from Washington University. This dude, uh, like, literally wrote a book about James Bond and teaches James Bond classes and knows um, probably more than I've ever forgotten about James Bond. Uh, So we're glad to have him here to talk about our favorite super spy. Uh, Everybody uh, give Colin a big round of applause. Thanks for having me. One more thing, if I could add it. Uh, I, I wish it were done, but it's currently being completed, the book. So but you're <laughs> working on you've, it. But you're working on you're it. You're way, way ahead of it. That's good. That's good. Uh, so uh, we, we've been chatting off and on uh, through email and then tonight before the show. Uh, what do you think it is about James Bond that still resonates with, with audiences 50-plus years after you know his creation boy that's the tough question isn't it um it's this is without question the longest running franchise of its kind in movie history uh there are other film series that run as long as this there's a series in japan called zatoichi which well outpaces the james bond franchise but the franchise itself is the longest running of its kind What explains its durability? I mean, I have to say there are probably a number of things. One of them is that it's become a kind of baton to pass between generations. Uh, One thing that strikes me as I teach James Bond to students who are 18, 19, 20, is that they take my class on James Bond and they find it as an opportunity to bond with their parents who have 
watched all the movies and then they end up sitting down with their parents who come by on parents' weekends or when they go home for Thanksgiving and they watch Bond movies together. So it's a kind of intergenerational thing that probably uh, on some level explains it. On another, on, on another level, the James Bond franchise has just been a great chameleon franchise. It has not been stuck, to a certain extent anyway, it's stuck in some ways, uh, in ways that deserve to be criticized actually. But it hasn't been totally stuck in time. It's adapted, or at least tried to adapt in some ways, failing hilariously to adapt but then picking up the, the pieces and, and rebuilding again. It's adaptability, in other words. Um, I also think that one of the, the things that t- tends to get forgotten about James Bond and its durability over time is the fact that it's not just a movie franchise. There's a, there are many ways to be committed to this franchise, and many fans are. I realize that most people in the room come here or want to hear about the movies themselves, Sean Connery through Daniel Craig, etc. But in point of fact, there are, there's the, the long-running and still-published novel franchise, which keeps going through the continuation novels, among other things, by uh, the most recent book by Anthony Horowitz. There's a fairly popular, not massively popular, comic series going on now by, in Dynamite. And you ask students... And and I'm talking about students from the year 1995 through the present. You ask them why they like James Bond. Particularly the male students, they say, it's Goldeneye, the video game. Mm -hmm. That's what drove them to the franchise. So I think that at least three things begin to explain why it um, has had such longevity. You know, I'm glad you brought up the video game because I had never thought about that before. and, And that being kind of like a gateway drug for a younger generation to get into Bond, which I think is really cool, Uh, especially because I've played a lot of the video games, and uh, some of them are fairly high-fidelity versions of Bond. I mean, they, they get the best parts of Bond right in the video game, which I can understand why that would lead... Uh, a younger generation of people who are playing those video games to go, okay, well, I love this. Let me go see what else there is out there and, and then start to experience the movies and go, oh, wow, this is just like in the video game. So, yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, so one of the things I wanted to touch on is uh, right off the bat that that generational factor that's involved because, like you said, uh Bond over the years has evolved and and not just with the kinds of movies, the kinds of stories that are being told. And, and I do want to touch on that here in a bit. Um, but the, the most obvious thing and the thing that becomes, you know, the centerpiece of any conversation that people have about James Bond is the actors that play the part. Absolutely. And, you know, if, if you want to start an argument with a group of Bond fanatics, just throw down the gauntlet and say, this guy's the best James Bond ever. (laughs) Whoever that may be. Uh, Especially if you want to say that it was, you know, Roger Moore or George Lazenby, because then you'll just start a a street fight amongst people. Um, But I I think it's very interesting that you do get uh, very different takes on the character from everybody that's played them. I don't think anybody has come along and tried to play the part like somebody that was one of their predecessors. 
I mean, I, I think the closest you would get would be maybe when Pierce Brosnan took over the part because he was very obviously a fan of Connery and the Connery movies and wanted to bring back some of that spirit that had been missing, you know, pretty much since Sean Connery stopped playing the role. But other than that, I mean, everybody approached the part differently. And, you know, I'm just wondering kind of what your perspective is on the fact that they've changed actors, but they haven't really changed that often. I mean, it's not like Doctor Who where, you know, we sit here and next month I'll be here talking about Doctor Who and talking about the new Doctor and how amazing it is to finally have a woman playing the part after 50 plus years. Uh, But with James Bond, I mean, we're there's very few people that have played this part in consideration of the fact that it's been on for so long. Uh, One, why do you think it is that there hasn't been more turnover in the franchise? And two, kind of speak to how each actor has kind of put their own imprint on the franchise every time there's a, a change like that. Um, on the question of why there hasn't been so much turnover, I mean, I think that the, the producers realize what they have to do to keep the franchise going. So the so Wilson and Broccoli, or Cubby Broccoli before that, they realize that they need an actor of a certain age that they can lock down to get multiple movies and squeeze as many movies as they can out of them. And in some cases, that doesn't work out. So with George Lazenby, I think they pretty much... Lazenby and the producers decided probably about halfway through the production, we're split-spill after this one. This is not going to work out. Um, But by and large, I think they've been successful at choosing the actor. And they do take care in choosing the next actor, among other things, according to age. But, you know, the look, the walk. In the case of Lazenby, famously, how he handled himself... Uh, during a, a test run of a fight scene where uh, they had a Russian wrestler rough him up a little bit, and he decided he didn't want to take it. So he actually belted the, the Russian wrestler right in the lip. And right there, Broccoli said, this is our choice, because he could hold himself physically. Uh, so I think that that's one of the reasons why they've, they've made just the right choices. I mean, if you think about all the coulda, woulda, shouldas, all those actors that rumored could have played James Bond over the years from Mel Gibson. At one point, MGM wanted Mel Gibson. They were trying to push Eon Productions for him to become James Bond or uh, any number of other possible selections. Sam Neill, for instance, which I think would have been very flat as an option. They've chosen the right actor, built the right kind of stories around the actor, constructed the actor as a celebrity, and were able to milk it for long periods of time. Um, I've actually kind of... How many of you are kind of frustrated that they don't try things out more often? I mean, I think that there is a stomach for that now. I've often said to friends of mine that Eon Productions should just have a short... You know, the season could last as long as a Black Mirror season where they just have, you know, six episodes where they do uh, what-if James Bond stories and they try things out with different types of actors, women, people of color, etc. One-off episodes just to see how they'd go. It would be low risk. Uh, I think the franchise, though, is very careful about not wanting to overexpose 
the franchise either. So with the, you know, they choose the right actors and they last a long period of time, partially because they don't overexpose them by having them make too many appearances in too many different types of media. Um, one of my colleagues, if you'll just permit this anecdote, uh, Richard Chapman, who's a screenwriter, he uh, proposed to the Eon Productions back in the early 90s when there were no movies out. He proposed, he came up with a treatment, he shared it with me, for a movie, a spoof. And at that point, of course, we're, we don't really have that many spoofs. This is before Austin Powers, which came in the late 90s. A spoof called uh, Goldfinger Jr. that was going to be played by Chris Farley. That was the idea. And the, apparently the Eon people loved the idea, but they had one re reaction. We don't want to dilute the product. We don't want too many things out there licensed to, licensed to dilute it. So I think they've made careful decisions about you know, who to choose, the actors that will have some longevity. They end up doing well at the box office, more or less. You're listening to Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and we'll be back with more from Dr. Colin Burnett, the crowd at the Science Center, and the first Friday James Bond live show that we just did about a week ago from St. Louis. So stay tuned for that. We've got more Geek Universe coming right up. Hey, gang, if you're sitting in your car or at home or at work or any other place that you listen to Geek Universe every weekend and you're enjoying the show, go support us on Patreon. There's a lot of cool rewards that are show-specific, like our t-shirts and our coffee mugs, and we've got the treasure chest of awesome goodness that you can get, full of geeky stuff like books and collectibles and games and toys and all sorts of cool stuff that will make you feel like a kid getting a Happy Meal again, except this time it's even better. There's better stuff in it. You can even have a chance to be a convention correspondent and show producer at some of the higher levels where we're going to send you to Comic-Con or New York Comic-Con or C2E2 in Chicago. There's lots of cool stuff. There's some stretch goals that we've got where we will be bringing you some really cool Patreon-exclusive programs like me re-watching all of the episodes of old shows, movies. We will have more guests joining us for those. A lot of fun stuff that we have on deck for those of you who go to Patreon and support the show. Go to patreon.com forward slash geek universe show. Check out the reward tiers. Pick one that's right for you and make sure that we can continue to bring you geek universe each and every week on this very radio station. And it's the best way to let us know that you're enjoying the show You're listening to Geek Universe. Once again, here's Jim Yelton. Welcome back to Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and we're talking James Bond this week with the crowd from our latest first Friday appearance at the St. Louis Science Center. Our guest that night was Dr. Colin Burnett from Washington University, and we've got so much Bond to talk about. Let's jump right back into the action. As far as what each actor contributes, we could probably go until the cows come home on this one. <laughs> um, how do you pin down what Connery had? or what Roger Moore didn't have, <laughs> or in some cases did have. I mean, Roger Moore was very good in some, to some extent. George Lazenby, I think, has his uh, pluses and minuses. Um, but let's, why don't we just start with Connery? Um, 
I really, I don't know what your favorite version of Connery's Bond is. There are actually multiple versions. I was going to say, that's a good point, because, you know, with with Connery, I mean, it does seem like there's, like, three distinct periods where Hmm. you've got, you know, the the early Bond, where it's, it's obvious that he... He's confident in what he's doing, but he's still trying to figure out the character in, in the first two. And, and then you get to that solid middle set where he, as soon as he shows up on screen, you're like, that's James Bond. There's no doubt about it. There's, there's no missteps in his performance. And then you get the, the later ones where it's very obvious that he's just going through the motions and getting sure. the paycheck. So, yeah, uh, Break it down into those three sections. So the the early ones, nobody had seen anything like this before. Right. So what is it about Sean Connery that makes James Bond work right off the bat? Um, I think above all the look. I mean, he just he was. Ter- the story is that Terrence Young, who directed the movie, took him under his wing and taught him how to walk taught him how to hold a suit, taught, taught him how to wear certain shoes, how to hold things. So he was well coached how to be a bodily presence on screen. And I think you see it in a number of sequences. For instance, the famous, it's in, famous, iconic, I should say, sequence where Ursula Andress emerges from the water in Dr. No, equally important is how Sean Connery's presented there. I mean, he's also scantily clad. And the way that he's able to deliver the line, no, I'm just looking, um, as a kind of quip in that moment, I think he had the humor, the sex appeal. He could also handle himself physically, which was absolutely important for fight scenes. I don't know about you, but I sometimes find it, find it less than plausible when uh, Pierce Brosnan walks into a room and were to believe that everyone would be intimidated by him physically. I think that Connery had that. If he walked into the room, everyone would look. And you just sense it when you see it on the big screen. Women would look, men would look, for different reasons. He had that, that, um, that charisma uh, that, that covered that. Now, I think he had that from the very beginning. But the thing is, Dr. No is kind of a sleuthing movie. He's a detective where he's trying to solve the mystery of who is Dr. No. So there's a lot of him going around collecting information and kind of doing reporting and piecing things together. But by the time you get to Thunderball, I mean, there's almost no opportunity for it. He's running from one action set piece to the next and wearing less and less clothing, by the way, as he goes <laughs> along. Uh, and yes, I think by the time we get to You Only Live Twice, where in 1967, where he announces he's done with the role, you can really sense that you're not getting much of a character at this point. He really is just appearing and becoming a kind of, um, not character, but a figure on screen. Uh, at that point. And let's not even talk about Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> we can just forget about that one. But, um, but yeah, I think that it, there's just a, a plausibility, it seems to me, in this rule, and just this magnetism, that charisma that hops from the screen that I don't think that many uh, of his successors have really had. I mean, for that reason, in anticipation of a question that's likely to come up, he is the greatest James Bond. I mean, I think he just, he, without him in the role, it is difficult to imagine that this would have caught on as a global franchise the way it was. In, in, to, to a certain extent, sorry to be, go prattle on, but if he, if he became bigger than the franchise, and I think they realized that by the mid to late 60s, so they started off, if you remember, with Dr. No and From Russia With Love. They deviated a little bit with Goldfinger, but they continue with Thunderball. They wanted to create a kind of serial arc, like a confrontation, 
Bond's taking down the evil organization Spectre. And eventually they just phase it out when they start to realize that, hey, it's about the character and Connery playing that character. That's what's selling tickets. Well, the interesting thing to me over the years is that each one of these people that played Bond, you know, when, when you mentioned that they at one point they wanted Mel Gibson, and but it wasn't, if, if I remember the timing right, it, it wasn't Mel Gibson at his peak superstardom. No. It was when he was still on the ascension to that. But he had done some some notable work, and he had, yeah. he had done a couple of hit movies, so it made sense. But none of these guys is coming into the role as a huge box office draw. And I think that's one of the things that they've been lucky in a way... But I also think it's intentional because, like you said, I think they learned a lesson with Sean Connery that they really need to make it more about the character and less about the actor. And they, they don't need this overwhelming presence in the role. They need somebody that can be a presence, that can be Bond, but you don't want the, the persona of the actor overshadowing the persona of Bond in a way. Yeah, they want the role and they want the franchise to be detachable from the character so that they can keep going on because they know they want to. Uh, every, we have officially entered, you may have noticed, speculation season uh, about who the next yep. James Bond's going to be. <laughs> now, I wouldn't pay much attention to it now because I actually don't think there's any real sense that the producers even know what they want to do after the Daniel Craig era. But I think you, you hear some big, huge names being thrown out that are associated already with some franchises. One of them is Tom Hardy, for instance. It seems highly unlikely that they take... The track record is they don't take people like that. Mm -hmm. They'll take someone that they can mold, that's somewhat well-known, that has some, some chops, maybe has played some sort of spy-like role, but that they can craft as James Bond. And, you know, the, the other thing that I think is funny is, yeah, speculation season. It seems like with Bond it gets earlier and earlier because it used to be you would never hear speculation about who the next Bond was going to be until the previous guy had said, I'm done, I'm not doing anymore, and they were actually working on another one. Well, Daniel Craig is, if I'm not mistaken, he's doing one more. They've, he's already signed for it. They're working on the script. They're trying to find a director. They're putting the wheels in motion for his final appearance as Bond. And we're already speculating. And, and we may be, you know, four or five years down the road before we even see who that person is. And I always tell people, to me, it, it's, it's purely speculative at this point to even have that conversation. Because it's going to be somebody that we may not even have heard of at this point that has a breakthrough performance two years from now in something, much like Daniel Craig did with Layer Cake, where you know he had done some stuff before that, but it wasn't until he makes this kind of like indie, low-budget movie where he's playing like this sort of gangster criminal guy involved in all sorts of, of high-stakes shenanigans that you really see him playing a part where you would go, oh, yeah, that guy could be James Bond. And so, you know, it's it always... The, the one that's always cracked me up for the last couple of years, and I think he came up while the casting process 
was going on to replace Pierce Brosnan uh, was Hugh Jackman. And I always said at the time, there's no way, no how, Hugh Jackman is going to be James Bond. He's already Wolverine. He's already he, can't, he can't be James Bond. God would not let the same person be James Bond and Wolverine. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And, and I kind of feel that whenever they, they mention people who are going to replace Daniel Craig. And like, like you said, with Tom Hardy, it's like, okay, that dude's already way visible because of other stuff he's done. It's not going to be somebody at that level. It's somebody at the next rung of the ladder. Somebody who's not quite had the huge breakout role yet. It's, uh, just to return to the first question that you posed, why the longevity? One of the longevity is that Bond, because it's, it's been around so long, is that it affords us so many little rituals that we kind of look forward to. And one of them now, the franchise benefits from it, is this free publicity speculating <laughs> about who the next James Bond is to, to the extent that actors take advantage of it in the social media age where Idris Elba came out and said, Elba, Idris Elba, and it on his Twitter account, and it caused a huge stir that everyone's like, is he, isn't he, we thought he wasn't, now is he back in the running? But it's amazing to think that this didn't always exist, just to put into context for a second. Uh, When the Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman got the rights from Ian Fleming to do the Bond franchise, they had a 10-year plan at best. They thought it's going to be 10. Harry Saltzman had the idea of using this to finance smaller projects, like more independent movies. And so that's one of the reasons why they, he split off eventually from Cubby Broccoli, the producer. But they, they basically thought this as a 10-year shelf life, and that's it. So there was no speculation at a certain point. People thought that Bond was done when Connery was out. Stay tuned. We'll have more with Colin Burnett and the crowd from the St. Louis Science Center from our James Bond First Friday live show this past week. I'm Jim Yelton. You're listening to Geek Universe. You were young and your heart was an open book. You're listening to Geek Universe. Once again, here's Jim Yelton. Welcome back to Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and we're talking James Bond this week with the crowd from our latest First Friday appearance at the St. Louis Science Center. Our guest that night was Dr. Colin Burnett from Washington University, and we've got so much Bond to talk about. Let's jump right back into the action. I'm glad you brought up uh, Cubby Broccoli and and Saltzman, and, and, you know, I want to get a little inside baseball for for just a a hair uh, before we start talking about some more of the fun stuff. Because one of the things that's fascinated me about this franchise over the years is that it is one of the, the biggest family businesses that only makes one thing that I can ever think of. Like, you know, when, when, Saltzman broke off from Cubby Broccoli and, and Cubby started doing it on his own. And then his daughter got involved and his son-in-law got involved. And it, you know, you would think if you had a big hit blockbuster movie franchise and you were the producer of these movies, that you would use that as leverage to make other projects, to do other things, to go out and buy the rights for other books and, and do that. And they've stayed in their lane for 50 plus years and it's like... We do one thing well. We make James Bond movies. Every once in a while, we, we you know swing and miss, but more often than not, we're hitting doubles and triples, and every once in a while, there's a home run. And that's all we do, and that's all we want to do. And it makes me wonder, 
you know, speaking of generationally, like what happens when uh, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson have to pass the baton to another set of producers? Because you're not going to have the family involved as much anymore, I, I would think. I mean, I don't know of anybody else in the family that, that is in line. It's not like there's another generation just waiting to get involved. Um, yes, I mean, look, this brings up the whole weird structure of Bond. I mean, it's, it's totally unlike Marvel. It's totally unlike Lucasfilm. It's totally unlike anything else because there are multiple rights owners, in fact. But, in, but it all boils down to this kind of family that runs really a, a Ma and Pa a, a franchise. I mean, they do it all in house. They develop a little bit of family of, of a family of people like Ken Adam, the production designer, who keeps coming back, or certain composers or screenwriters that they trust. They all form a part of this family. Cubby Broccoli, the way he ran things, was that was it. If you were a new writer or production designer or composer coming into making a Bond movie, you almost there's there are stories about this where new people coming in would feel like this is a bit alienating because they're all like a tightly knit family making these movies beyond you, beyond the broccolis. And, and for a lot of those early movies, you had the same director, you had yeah, the same right. stunt people. I mean, it was they knew how to make a Bond movie. Yeah. To project forward, look, I mean, more speculation, but speculation's fun, so why not? Um, it there is among friends of mine who are big Bond aficionados, Bond domains. What do we call them? There's no word like the Holmes in people. Uh, <laughs> Bond fans. Um, what's that? Bondophiles, right? Okay. Um, the so there 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 is speculation that they want one last big one with the Craig era. They've even told the, the uh, distributors a bunch of distributors were bidding on this Bond twenty five movie. We don't have the title yet, and they they were telling all of these major distributors we want a billion dollar box office. We want it guaranteed. Now, of course, they are ultimately responsible for creating a movie that's going to have the buzz that does so. But here's the point. I think they want one last payoff, and they want to end the Craig era. And the speculation is that whatever rights they may have, that they would sell them. And that would be it to the Broccoli era of owning Bond. Now, who is likely, with their shares going through the roof, <laughs> to purchase the James Bond franchise and be able to afford it? There are a few likely candidates, but can you imagine if Disney owned this too? They would own the whole planet, by and large, <laughs> in terms of franchises or major franchises. But here's why I say it in addition. If you think about the Daniel Craig era, I assume we'll, we, we'll get to that eventually. Why not just uh, skip yeah, to why it? Not? <laughs> the Daniel Craig period, if you think about it, you're getting... I don't know that this was the plan from the beginning. Uh, the Bond franchise, they're not like the Marvel Cinematic Universe where they sit, sat down and try to plan it all ahead, 20 movies ahead, multiple Netflix series and so on. The Bond franchise is more fly by the seat of your pants. Let's see what works as we go. But they did go back to Casino Royale because they finally got the rights. So they went back to the origins. They reset it. They put the origins in the contemporary era. There was even, does anyone remember MySpace? <laughs> there was a MySpace page. It doesn't exist anymore that gave a new biography to James Bond that would be the Craig biography where he had fought in Afghanistan at one point. So they did all this and laid the groundwork for what would eventually become through a range of you know deals and ideas and again throwing things at the wall seeing what sticks and then coming out they've come away with their stamp 
on the biography of James Bond. And I think this has been an obsession of Michael Wilson in particular. He's, he's one of the major producers. Since the 80s, he's been writing scripts, and I've been able to read them, where he wants to create more of a character and a character history for James Bond. And he would work with the screenwriters, but Cubby Broccoli would always veto this idea. So now when Cubby Broccoli's out of the way, <laughs> and, and Craig, they could launch a new era, because Broccoli was around for the beginning of the Brosnan era, they could launch the Craig era, they basically are creating the full biography of James Bond and laying their stamp on it. This is Bond's life. Don't go to the novels. Don't go to that John Pearson book. I don't know if you know it, the authorized biography of Bond, which is an official biography. It's a narrative of who Bond really is. Don't go there. Go to this movie series. We're going to give you the minute that Craig's Bond got his double O, we're going to take you through all of the major conflicts. Spectre. We're going to take you through his first love. Who knows, in the next movie, we may see a version of him getting married, as we saw in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. The rumor was, before um, Danny Boyle was let go from the most recent Bond, which created a little bit of a stir, that one of the ideas was, in this next Bond movie, Bond is going to die, if you can imagine it. So there they really would give you complete... I know, it's difficult to imagine. <laughs> so uh, who knows what they're still planning, and that's still part of the rumors that that's in the script that, that Craig's Bond will perish in this, in this version. So the point is, um, they may, we may get that. And if they do it, then that might be a signal, the Broccoli's, we've done what we're going to do with this character. And, and that would be a fitting end to, to their era of control over the franchise, because then whoever gets it can do whatever they want with it, you know, they, they can say, hey, we gave our full version of what we think the James Bond story is. And, you know, so now you can reboot it however you want and do whatever you want. And, and one of the things that I liked about Skyfall was that that to me, it, you know, yeah, Casino Royale, because of the time it came out, you know, right around the time Batman Begins came out, too. So it, Hollywood was very reboot heavy at that point and was like, okay. There's nothing wrong with doing these kind of soft resets and telling an origin story for the character that had been around for decades. I liked that, but I also liked in Skyfall where they used a lot of character moments, especially, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Skyfall, uh, Judy Dench dies in it, and, and they bring in Ray Fiennes who is in the whole movie is kind of this like dude that's just a jerk to James Bond for the whole movie but then he becomes the new M and you get Money Penny becoming Money Penny and and you see James Bond starting to use more gadgets in that movie he, they they bust out the Aston Martin and it's like oh I know what you guys are doing now the the other two movies we're setting up the James Bond that I grew up loving. That wasn't that guy. This is the guy now. Like, he's officially that guy. The, the universe of James Bond that I grew up with is now, all of the pieces are in place, and where you go forward from here is into that world. And I get it. And, and I loved that they did that. And, and so, I, as a fan, I think it would be very gutsy for them to kill the character off. And, and close the book on Daniel Craig's Bond, um, you know, but also in a very James Bond-like way, you know, doing something to leave the door open to where you know, well, he's not the last 007. 
he may not even be the last James Bond. You know, wherever they pick up the threads of this story, can connect to this, can not connect to it, however they want to do it. Um, but I do want to touch on, because you, you mentioned Disney, um, and, and whenever people hear about a major franchise like this being up for sale, uh, I think everybody just panics because, you know, Disney wants to own everything. I, I don't necessarily know. I mean, Disney has the money, obviously, but if you're one of the other major studios that has to compete with Disney, I don't know that you get many opportunities like this that come along. And so I wonder if a Sony or a Universal doesn't have to go all in, no matter what the, the dollar amount is, and outbid Disney for this franchise. Because you're almost guaranteeing yourself that as long as you make the movies the way they should be made, you have a, a perpetual revenue stream. You can make James Bond movies until the cows come home. Stay tuned. We'll have more with Colin Burnett and the crowd from the St. Louis Science Center from our James Bond First Friday live show this past week. I'm Jim Yelton. You're listening to Geek Universe. If you're sitting in your car or at home or at work or any other place that you listen to Geek Universe every weekend and you're enjoying the show, go support us on Patreon. There's a lot of cool rewards that are show-specific, like our t-shirts and our coffee mugs, and we've got the treasure chest of awesome goodness that you can get, full of geeky stuff like books and collectibles and games and toys and all sorts of cool stuff that will make you feel like a kid getting a Happy Meal again, except this time it's even better. There's better stuff in it. You can even have a chance to be a convention correspondent and show producer at some of the higher levels where we're going to send you to Comic-Con or New York Comic-Con or C2E2 in Chicago. There's lots of cool stuff. There's some stretch goals that we've got where we will be bringing you some really cool Patreon-exclusive programs like me re-watching all of the episodes of old shows, movies. We will have more guests joining us for those. A lot of fun stuff that we have on deck for those of you who go to Patreon and support the show. Go to patreon.com forward slash geek universe show. Check out the reward tiers. Pick one that's right for you and make sure that we can continue to bring you geek universe each and every week on this very radio station. And it's the best way to let us know that you're enjoying the show Now, back to Geek Universe. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. Once again, here's your host, Jim Yelton. Hey, gang, welcome back to Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and we are going to wrap things up with our first Friday conversation from the St. Louis Science Center, the most recent one we've done where we were talking James Bond with Washington University professor Dr. Colin Burnett and the crowd at the Science Center. And we decided to wrap things up with Colin with a little bit of a speed round to see who his favorite villains were and what his favorite movie was of the Bond franchise. Whenever I talk about James Bond, and I told you before we started the show, that there's certain questions that you can ask a Bond fan and get a feel for what kind of person they are just based on the answers that they give. Uh, I, I was going to ask you what your favorite movie is, but we may save that 
Can we get till, to that? Till the end. Um, oh, okay. I, I, who's your favorite villain out of all the, oh. the Bond villains? Um, a difficult one, but I am partial simply because I just love the idea of a villain who just won't die up to Ernst Avril Blofeld. But in the movies, there's been so much flipping and flopping and mostly flopping with the character. Uh, I love... For reasons that fa- that I think that uh, critics and stuff like that fans don't quite appreciate, I love Telly Savalas. Although he's a TV actor at the time, I love him as Blofeld. He's perfect uh, in the character. Not perfect, excuse me. He's, he's a physical presence, and that's what he needs to be with James Bond. You need to feel that he can be a brute uh, at the same time as he's a mastermind. Um, but I put him absolutely at the top. Look, who's the most iconic? Gert Frober. Obviously, it's Goldfinger you're going to see tonight. (laughs) To the extent that, I mean, that he probably stands out as the one who really wrote the book on who who should be the villain. To the extent that, just I'll quickly say, that they, the screenwriters tried to rewrite all of the subsequent movies, well, a few, the next three or four, so that they could write a character that Frober could play again. (laughs) At one point, Ernst Avril Blofeld was going to be revealed as Gert Frober. Who would then say, my twin brother was Goldfinger. (laughs) Uh, Favorite Bond gadget. Like, this is, to me, like, this is the epitome of a question you can ask a Bond fan because there's really no wrong answer. uh, But I'll I'll let you give it a shot. What's your favorite Bond gadget? It's, it's a Bond gadget in the sense that it's in a movie, but I do like the watch where you pull out the little string. Oh, yeah. The Robert Shaw watch yeah. that he uses to strangle his opponents. That, in the end, James Bond does use. But I, I also have to say, of course, it's the car. How could I not say? The, which yeah. Aston Martin, though. Yeah, <laughs> Certainly not one? the Vanish that we end up oh, getting. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> the, uh, Pierce Brosnan era. To, to me, the car has to be the best because the, one of the problems that I have with Bond, and, and one of the few complaints I have about, and it's it's any Bond movie uh, that has gadgets in it is you know there's the stereotypical scene where he goes and and talks to Q and Q's showing him all this stuff that they're working on that he's not ever giving him it's just hey here's all the cool stuff we've got in the background and here's what I'm giving you for this mission and it's always stuff that he needs it's very specific to whatever situation he finds himself in. It's not like just random equipment that he has to then figure out a way to use in a clever way. It's always, well, I'm I'm stuck in a prison cell. Luckily, I have this watch on me that has a laser beam that'll cut through the bars. It's like, no. Like, I want you to have something that you have to use your brain to figure out how to use the gadget to get you out of the situation. Uh, which is why I think the car is my favorite because the car is like a multi-purpose gadget and it has so much other stuff on it that he can use it because every Bond movie has a car chase in it. He's going to be chased by the bad guys at some point and he's going to need a cool car to help him get out of it. So uh, for the longest time, I loved the Lotus that turned into the submarine just because I thought that was so cool. Um, But the Aston Martin for me, and the biggest thrill I had watching Skyfall in the theater was when he went back to his place with with M, and they're getting ready to go to to the house and hide out. 
and he opens the garage and the, the Bond music plays and I'm like, oh, holy crap, he's got the Aston Martin. Like, why does this guy have an Aston Martin sitting in his garage? Well, of course, because he's James Bond and why wouldn't he? Um, so we've, we've got just a few minutes left and I wanted to save this for last. Uh, what is your favorite Bond movie? And, and if it's not Goldfinger, why is it not Goldfinger? Uh, you know, uh, so let me be controversial, and you can boo if you like. Um, I actually think Goldfinger is a middling James Bond movie. I think it's it's actually not. It, people say it's the prototype. I always wonder why they think that. When you watch it tonight, I don't know when's the last time you've seen it. It has a, such a bizarre plot to it, and it, it becomes, does. <laughs> it becomes very plodding around the middle. Bond is captured for the whole movie, and he's in the cell, and so on. And I find once we get to Kentucky, the thing slows to a halt. Um, so, and I, if you guys don't remember this, if you're going up to watch the movie. Um, Sean Connery wears a jumper in this movie. I mean, for crying out loud, he's a grown man wearing a jumper. He does indeed. 60 style. Sean Connery can make anything except for that powder blue jumper look amazing. And he looks like such a geek wearing that. So I think it has, I think it's considered to be so important because it has so many iconic moments. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die and all these other things and pussy galore and the name and so on. But um, so for me, that ranks somewhere in the middle I my favorite Bond movie and of course it's important to put these things into context is actually on Her Majesty's Secret Service um, if Connery had played that movie and t- taken it seriously while playing it I think without question we would all consider it to be one of the best Bond movies now I think many people don't like it because they think that Lazenby is just unwatchable. Uh, he is kind of gruff and rough around the edges, and his walk is bizarre. He sort of rocks back and <laughs> forth. But I love the fact that it's, it was trying to create a character here more than anything else. And is there any better Bond girl than Tracy, where you actually you had to come up with the right actress and the right role and write it in certain ways that you would buy that James Bond would give it all up to get married, which I thought was extraordinary. And it has one of those most shocking endings that you can ever imagine in the history of Bond to the extent that it was such a downer that people (laughs) didn't like it. (laughs) And Connery was brought swiftly back. But that's my favorite movie. I also think it has one of the best scores. That score, with all those chase scenes in the snow, the ski scenes, and the bobsled scenes, I think is one of the best pieces of of music that Bond's ever produced. I will say also this. Historically, I view it as important because rewatch that movie and watch how it's edited. Peter Hunt is a really extraordinary artist. He was an editor on most of the Bond movies in the first 10 years. The cutter. He would have to clean things up and put the images together. And then you get... Thunderball, where you watch that last sequence when they're on the disco volante and the the yacht and there's a fight scene on it and it's cut so fast and he's breaking all the cutting rules. It feels like little shards of action. You get this now, he directs on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So he has carte blanche to do this in scene after scene after scene. I think this movie really does point toward the future, to what would happen with cutting in action movies in the 90s, the 2000s, up to the present. He really did foresee that, it seems to me. Tell people real quick, uh, before everybody goes to run and, and see Goldfinger, the, the book you're working on, 
what's the working title for it? What's the timetable for it to be published? The working title is Serial Bonds, The Multimedia Life of 007. So I'm going to cover, as much as I possibly can, everything. The novels, the movies, the video games, and look at what kind of serial experience this creates for you in a way that's totally different from what's going on in Star Wars or in Marvel. So what is it to follow Bond on all of these different media, where these media sort of compete with each other rather than play together? Um, and that, I hope, will be completed out and available at fine bookstores near you. Uh, do those exist anymore? <laughs> uh, in the interval between the last Craig and the launch of the next James Bond movie Man, after that. pretty smart. Thanks again, Colin, for being here. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to another exciting episode of Geek Universe with Jimmy Elton. Find out more about every corner of the Geek Universe including previous episodes, dates for our live appearances, and theme merchandise including Trivia Thunderdome t-shirts from Jim's book, The Swindlers of Doom, at GeekUniverseShow.com. You can also find Geek Universe with Jim Yelton at Facebook.com slash 30 Minutes of Geek, or on Twitter using the Twitter handle, at 30 Minutes of Geek. Geek Universe with Jim Yelton is a production of Midnight Entertainment, LLC. This episode is copyright 2017, all rights reserved. Well, kids, that's all you get. That's it. Read a book.